Dave Max Cork History Matters, brought to you by Red FM. And to me of the Shandon Area History Group, thank you for joining me this evening for this Cork History Matters podcast chat. Thanks, Dave. Bringing women more into history is is an ongoing process, mm-hmm. I think, of, of mm-hmm. now. I mean, Countess Markievicz, for sure, is, is mm-hmm. a... a, 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 a a well-known name yeah. in in yeah. Irish independence is, in the Irish yeah. independence story, but there's yeah. many other women there who, is, who and were I there. And this this is what this is about. This film is, of framework and, films, and ordinary women in extraordinary yeah. times. Prior to the film, I suppose that's how um, we kind of uh, we did a few other things originally as the group, but coming into the commemorations of 2016, uh, what to do? You know, what would we do? And I actually happened to be teaching um, an adult date history course at the time in my old school, North Pres, and I felt that the women's history this was a chance to do something and I brought it to the table at one of our meetings and it just took off now like you I thought of I thought of Countess Markovich and they were all saying no we're doing we're doing Cork women then I thought of Mary McSweeney it was the one name but suddenly the group around us mentioned the Wallace sisters the Duggan sisters Maeve, Maeve Higgins mentioned her mother Emma Horrigan and it took off from there uh, Dave and I began to realise these were all Cork women that I knew absolutely nothing about and I would have done like yourself I had been at UCC done history at UCC taking it on to a master's level didn't know who these women were and around this table I just listened and learned from the people in the uh, at the group and at the meeting and we started to do we did an exhibition in 2016 of, of we picked um, 11 women and um, we, we've, we've just told their stories on storyboards. We couldn't get over the reaction to it. It was shown in St. Peter's in the North Main Street. And then we, we started to give a talk here and a talk there. Nerve wracking, but we got there. And um, it was after one of those that Councillor Kieran McCarthy and others came to us and said, you have to do tell more of their stories. So we wrote this book called Ordinary Woman, Women in Extraordinary Times and we peaked it for 2019 for the for the anniversary of the first Doyle and that. And we were thrilled. It was launched by the then Lord Mayor John Sheehan in the City Hall. And it was from that then that Emma and Eddie approached us from different talks that we had done on the Wallace sisters and on the McSweeney's that at some point or other they would love to do um, a documentary based on these women and I suppose what inspired us was um, an introduction to a book that was written in the 60s by a Cork woman Lil Conlon she was a member of the Shandon Cumanaman and she asked a question uh, sarcastically I think she was asking it because she knew better than most what they'd done the line what did the women do anyway and she proceeded in her book to try and answer it. Now, it's, it was a pioneering effort, but there was a lot more research to be done. And over the years, thankfully, some wonderful women and men have put on record, um, you know, have started to work on the history of women in Ireland and what they've done. And in our case, we decided to do this book. And this I'm hoping this documentary, plus um, there was an earlier one um, by the City Council, Endurance and Engagement, also on Cork women and what they've done for the city, that it would really activate historians, but also teachers to say to their young students, there is a pile of stuff out there on Cork women. And if you're in other counties, let's search our women, uh, find out about our women and do, you know, start your study on them, do your history projects on them. Um, 
and just it's not that it has to be either the women or the men but let's start balancing it out more and mm. the stories that have been revealed I mean these well, and there's women mo- and there's more to be discovered in searching oh, those stories yeah. Oh, yeah, because absolutely. the others are well told oh they are absolutely <laughs> you know and it's been a great a great joy to us that we've had leaving so our students contact us as a group could they access the book could, would it be alright to use some of the material um, could they interview us to talk about some of the women the Wallace sisters in particular are, are very popular with, with youngsters but um, like what they, what comes across from, from um, young teenagers studying these are what amazing women. But even in my old adult ed classes, I all through the COVID I was doing, I just, you know, because we were all online, it was very difficult for the age group. But they were wonderful because we used to do a different woman every week and they just couldn't get over the fact that these were women that lived in their own city and county and the contribution they made that was never mentioned in history mm. books at all, you mm. know, never at all. Maybe you know? it's the beginning of a process when you see the likes of Mary Elms Bridge and, and oh, the like. Yeah. Where there's, there's, there's certainly an uncovering Absolutely. of hidden stories. There is, and, and that's all you want to do uh, with history is uh, is to just, um, you know, uncover stories and let the stories be told. Mm. You don't, it doesn't have to mean that you take one side or the other. Oh, really? It just means you tell the stories of them, you know. So for, so, for, any, for any Anyone who wants to dig further, myself and Gabriel Doherty have had a series of Cork yeah. History Matters podcast yes. chats on 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 Cork through you know yeah. from 1969 yeah. through you well, know Gabriel's that that fount of knowledge oh, brilliant <laughs> through, through the, the you know the dramatic yeah. year of of 1920 yeah uh, coming yeah. out of um that was a Spanish phenomenal flu, year, coming out really. of a pandemic then as yeah. well yeah a, a phenomenal year as right but you know yeah. so you've yeah. you've you know, effectively, the, the the leaders of of republicanism in Cork, for want mm. of a better term, were Tomas McCurtain and Terence McSweeney, number one, number two. Tomas yeah. Yeah. is is effectively assassinated in his bed by by the RIC, yeah. um, by Irishmen in his yeah. in his bed in in Blackpool. Uh, uh, his he, he's. he's, he's He's the first Sinn Féin Lord Mayor of Cork. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's replaced by Terence McSweeney, who later dies on hunger strike in Brixton mm-hmm. Prison. Mm-hmm. Um, Terence's wife is Muriel. That's right. Um, in so why don't we, in yep. talking about these five yep. women, start with Muriel McSweeney okay. and, 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 and... Okay, so in the in the documentary, it's in two parts and it talks about the Wallace sisters in part one and in part two, um, we put the three McSweeney uh, women together and in fairness to Emma and Eddie, they were happy to do that as well. That if we were telling about Mary's story, the, the two sisters were Mary and Annie, but his wife was Muriel McSweeney. And to, again, redress the balance on Muriel very little mention of her in any of the history books at all at all barred that she was the um, the Lady Mares and that she was Terence McSweeney's wife but actually she was in her own right um, she was very much committed to the cause she um, came back to Ireland having been sent to finishing school in England and she came back just as the First World War was, was breaking out in 1914 became um, great friends with a musician here in Cork Geraldine Sullivan Neal and they she was connected to the McSweeney's they were friends so uh, the two girls you can kind of see them they went to different uh, I call them soirees but literary evenings um, public display dramas and things and that musical evenings and language classes and language likely, classes because there was a big language was a big thing Gaelic revival the Conran and Gaelic especially was a huge thing and I think particularly for women it gave them an out um, a way of getting into kind of uh, interaction outside of the home mm. it was a social occasion because with the great, 
with the Gaelic League. There was, you know, interaction of speech. Classes were mixed. There was um, dancing. There was outings. So that kind of um, that in itself gave it a vibrancy as well because it had a social outlet to it. And uh, and, and it kind of took on. I, I We've noticed that in most of the women that we covered it in, and these five women in the book, they were all interested in the Irish language and had a passion for it. Not that they all spoke it fluently or any mm. by any means, but they promoted it. The McSweeney's through their school. My, uh, Muriel McSweeney always signed her letters and we discovered that in the course of the documentary um, from uh, a number of people that contributed to it that she always signed her letters Muriel Ban Vixivna. And Muriel, she didn't like Muriel, but Terence translated it as Muriel, that it was bright sea. And she <laughs> loved that version. So she always used the Irish version Muriel of it, you know. Ban, so Ban um, she was a, she was um, I think uh, she was a very strong woman. She was quite revolutionary in her own way. She had her flaws. Yes, she was a very complex woman, highly intelligent, I think, um, very vibrant. And she actually fought, physically fought in the Civil War. She went to America to lecture to get funds in the Civil War. She went straight after Terence's death, which was a huge, huge uh, strain on her life because um, she uh, their baby was not that old. And off she went. Uh, fundraising, wasn't fundraising it? Fundraising along with Mary. They toured America, gave lectures. She was actually the first woman to be given the freedom of um, of New York City. Um, and she was... Um, she was the first woman to be yeah. given the freedom of New York City. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And she she was quite a beauty in her own right. But uh, that aside, she was deeply political and very, very socially aware. She was asking deep questions about poverty in Cork City and about mother and baby homes in Cork City long before anybody was asking those questions. And tell me, like, if, if Tomás McCurtain and Terence McSweeney are sort of Republican agitators or, mm, or yeah. Sinn Féin support. Like if she's gone to finishing school across mm. in England, what, yeah, what, yeah. how do her family feel about her? She she uh, came from the very, we mentioned about them already, the Murphy Brewing family and she was from the distilling side of the family. They lived in a massive property just um, uh, in Montanotti, Carrickmore House and um uh, she was the youngest of that family by by a good bit. Oh, her, she had brothers and sisters, but they were a good bit older than her. They were very connected to the higher echelons of the Catholic Church. Uh, way back, one of their ancestors was Bishop of Cork as well. So there was a, there was a lot of um, they had a standing, let's say, in mm. the city. And I think when Muriel was coming down to the city in, um, you know, very well dressed, very well being well educated, I think it did a um, affect her social conscience that she saw kids uh, with very little you know bad clothes no shoes poverty great deal of poverty lot of malnutrition which was very obvious even to a young girl and um, she had questions about that and, and it, it it provoked as I say an opening awareness in her social conscience but it also started to ask her questions about the Cathy fate I think, which I think she found very restrictive mm. and they sent her to England to finishing school there that it would kind of set her, settle her down and calm her down and she said they thought they'd um, they thought they'd sort me out but they didn't so she was still a rebel when she came back mm. I think Terence initially we were saying that the relationship between them was not it wasn't a love at first sight sort of thing I think maybe she was attracted to him but he was very wary of her because of her her background but um 
in time those barriers broke down but also the IRA and Cork were actually they began to trust her a great deal and they knew of her social circle that she could move in places that they couldn't and she could travel at times across to England they used her actually during the 1916 rising to go afterwards to find out who was imprisoned where after the, the dust settled on the rising. That's interesting. You say yeah. this actually women were able to move around mm-hmm. and they, would be, they wouldn't yeah. be stopped yeah. and accosted in that's the same right. way or even searched. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> uh, that, was, that was one of the reasons why the Wallace sisters were ideal intelligence operators because mm. it took till kind of well into 1920 uh, for the British forces to accept that women were actually their, the big underground or as, as that series was years ago Secret Army in Cork so they and were, the sort, places, of, they were sort of the glue to all of this yeah they like were how a lot of the secret of stuff actually operated yeah. and went on yeah. was because the women man- were oh, the yeah. ones who made it happen um, Tom Barry uh, in his book Gorilla Days in Ireland has has a, a very warmly written section about Coming Amon and, and the women that worked through Coming Amon but not just through Coming Amon because the Wallace sisters were never members of Coming Amon but that they that they um how they worked underground and in dreadful circumstances and in stressful situations and the bike was their transport particularly in the country areas mm. down byways and highways and laneways to get to the flight columns or to deliver um, messages or to collect arms or to find if there was somebody hiding to try and get them from one place to another and Michael Collins himself when he came to Cork in March of 1922 um, he was greeted by a big group at the the railway station and they marched him down and one of the people that greeted him was the president of the Shannon Coming Man, uh, Kate Birdie Conway and in the course of her welcoming him he then responded and he said few in Ireland will ever realise how much they owe to the women of Ireland so there was an understanding among uh, say those that were in the forefront of the volunteers of how much they depended on on the women. And if you like, for the Wallace sisters, for example, as I said, they were the key. Their shop was the was the hub of the intelligence network for the Cork number one IRA brigade. But it was they found it very hard to get pensions afterwards as, as war of independence pensions. But the the leader that stepped into the breach for the IRA after Terence McSweeney's death was a man called Sean Hagerty, quite a ruthless man, quite, uh, and he upped the ante in the city completely in terms of the attacks and how they were going to uh, deal with those. But he, he later, um, he didn't take part in the civil war. He, he, he was against the treaty, but he just couldn't. Uh, I don't think he, he was up. To, he didn't want to take arms against Collins and others. But he was in the Wallace sisters uh, corner when they got their pensions. He recorded everything they had done because he sat in their kitchen planning ambushes, planning or, you know, prison breaks and that. And he was there with them when they were the ones uh, sending out the notices or going to collect people that were on the run or whatever and harboring fellows and they kept ledgers of all the so, arms. Who the are they? I don't, I'm not. A Their name, they were Sheila and Nora Wallace. They were two uh, two members of a large family from uh, Boracoring out in Dunamore. Um, uh, that was a rural area but they lost their land the father uh, lost the land due to eviction circumstances so then they were you know it was very tight to try and survive so they came into the city to look for work and uh, one of the sisters um, had hired a little premises down the side of St Augustine's Church called St Augustine Street it was then Brunswick Street and, and they, where is St Augustine's Church? St Augustine Street is between um 
it, there's um, the the Centra shop, and you have also um, Queen's Old Castle there, and yes. there's a little side street. It's oh, not well a very that, oh, that's St Augustine's Church. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's yeah, like not a very right on um, Salubrious Street, street <laughs> shall we say? Oh, that one. Oh, gotcha. It, no, it exactly takes you it through is, from yeah. South Main Street onto gotcha. Grand Parade. No, exactly. But um, we would be very. I think it would be um, lovely if the council put up uh, a plaque there to those two women. They ran a little shop there, and the shop was a front for the intelligence brigade of the IRA. In fact, the then chief of the intelligence network in Cork was a man called Florio Donoghue. He said of the two Wallace sisters that um, if any two women deserved immortality, they did for what they did for, for the cause. They were amazing women. And active from what period? They would have been active in the Republican movement, uh, I suppose, from 1918, 1919. But prior to that, they would have been very involved uh, with James Connolly's labour movement. They were both um, very interested in trade union politics. They were um, they were devout Catholics, the two of them, but actually they saw no differentiation between James Connolly's message of mm. social mm. socialism and Catholicism mm. if they were or, run or properly. Or Christianity. Or Christianity in mm. that sense. And actually, there, even in later years, they ran the shop. Uh, Sheila died first in the 1940s but the shop stayed open till the 60s and they ran it as a little religious shop a news agents and tobacconist shop but in later years um, they would have been known as two women who would have been very decent to people who in the area were under pressure financially or a lot of kids that would never have got you know a bar of chocolate or whatever or dress for communion or confirmation they helped them on a quiet dignified way you know and Wait uh, the, the and sisters helped the kids or, yeah, or and the families you know the gotcha. families of Oh so people. they were benefactors for others they, they hadn't, were, they hadn't they fallen were, on hard times They were, Sorry, they were I, in I, their own small way they were, um, I suppose, they were practical socialists in that oh, sense. Yeah. They were members of the Citizens Remarkable Army. Remarkable women. Remarkable and people. They were very close to Countess Markovic. Yeah. Uh, a number of occasions, they they met her in Cork, and on one occasion when she was trying to get out of Cork prison, they were helpful to help her in disguise and all that. They always referred to her as Madam, as others did. James Connolly was a personal friend of theirs, and they were very close to him. So they were politically and socially aware. Coming into the turn of 1912, 1913, 1914, which were very volatile years in, in in Ireland, but especially in Cork, because we were making that passage away from being a loyal city mm. where the Union Jack flew quite, you mm-hmm. know, quite easily yep. to being a more Republican city. Mm. And they, um, the volunteers and that when they were founded in 1913, 1914, and they began to split away from not go to support the First World War, McCurtain and McSweeney were in that group. They they would have been uh, known that there was a welcome in the Wallace shop for that. And people gradually took to meeting there and um, and they would have been. Nora Wallace, in fact, became basically Thomas McCartan's personal assistant. And he would come over from the Lord Mayor's office to the shop and she would help him type up stuff and uh, write whatever his speeches and all that sort of stuff. But she also ran his IRA network for him. She's delivered messages and uh, dispatch boxes and all of that. And there's a story told, it's told in the film, that he came in one night and discovered she was knitting socks. And he said to her, I hope that. That's not for one of my boys because I need you focused on this. So, it was, <laughs> you know, he was like he was cutting her. But at the same time, they never married either of them. But mm. he was kind of saying to them, this is not a job for um, you have to be um, you have to be devoted to it. Sheila Wallace was uh, made a full officer in the IRA. 
And um, such was the such was her uh, capacity for intelligence work. Such was her capacity for um, keeping, as they said, keeping silent. Um, a lovely story that we were told was about her funeral. She died as a result of an accident falling off a bus, the old double decker buses in the 40s. And um, as a result of her injuries, she only lived a couple of days. But when the old Cork IRA got to hear of it, um, they were heartbroken because she was quite small in stature, but m- big in heart and huge, uh, huge intelligence and bravery just pouring out all her bones, really, and pores of her body. So he they, they arranged after mass in St. Peter and Paul's that they would carry her coffin in relays all the way from Peter and Paul's to St. Finbar Cemetery. Uh, that was the it was as if they the were tribute. saying to her. They were, that was their tribute to her. They were carrying her in the way she had had their backs for a long time, you Goodness know. Me. Is the is the location mm. of the shop still extant? No, the the shop is gone, but the 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 kind of I suppose the the build there's a building there now, but it's very run down and it's not a great street to, to no, walk down. But, but was that the building? It yeah, there was a kind of uh, it's so the much, actual building they were in is still there. It's, or it's, or it's a more modern shape okay. of a building, but the shop is completely destroyed. But they have photographs of it yeah. and an artist's impression of it you know and um, they, their their health suffered as a result of it because they were always on edge they were always on alert they were you know um, they lived over they had somebody living over the shop and that he was part of the whole game as well then oh, you it's know it's just such a pity no one recorded their stories uh, yeah orally I mean I mean yeah. you know we're recording devices and yeah. things back then yeah, they were they were but, but you see it was very interesting social and, historians have a big role to play and an awful lot of women didn't speak about their roles mm except to their family members mm. or to their um or as as somebody said to me once those that knew knew mm. and and that was the way their stories were kept but i think a lot was to do with the way in which f- women then were perceived in the free state later or sersthite Aaron um later and the role that women played which was much more family focused mm. and from the home based mm. woman uh, and so women that were more radical and more revolutionary and had kind of run these kind of operations and that. Weren't quite the role model. No, they weren't. And they were also targeted much more in the civil war than they had been in the war of independence because unfortunately, and and the same happened to the Wallace sisters, people that sat around their table planning ambushes were now on opposite sides of that table Mm. because of the treaty. So they knew who the spies were. They knew who the intelligence people were and most of them were the women. So women, I think women suffered a great deal in the civil war because they were they were a lot of them were arrested and you know t- shipped to places like Cork jail and then up to Dublin to uh, Mount Joy Kilmainham and to um oh what was it the North Dublin Union but Mary McSweeney for example um went on hunger strike in in Kilmainham and Mary and Annie to, are the older yeah, sisters of Muriel they are they are they are sisters-in-law they oh, were, sisters-in-law. Yeah, they're her oh, sisters-in-law. So they're, they're the actual, no, actual they're, they're, their connection. She marries to Max Sweeney. She marries they're to Max Sweeney. And their sisters. connection is Terence. Gotcha. They're his sisters gotcha. and she's gotcha. his wife, you yeah. know. Uh, they were a great supporter. There was, there was unfortunately a family split later, but they were a great supporter in the early days um, because he was in and out of prison quite a bit from their marriage in 1917. And, uh, and they were very good to her when the baby was on the way. Uh, they had only the one child, uh, Terence and herself. Moira Og, um, she was to have another child later, but that was another story. But she, they were very good to her, Mary and Annie, and that. Well, you know, we kind of, uh, we kind of touched 
briefly on like so what do you reckon was the feeling of of the Murphy family to her um I think it, well she was she uh, was often estranged from the Murphy family as a young woman as a, a teenager and later uh, in her early 20s let's say because um her values her political values her anti-catholic values as such um were in direct contravention of what they were thinking and what they were standing for they were very unhappy about the marriage to Terence because uh, you know let's let's be fair about it they saw him as a, you know he was part of the, this Sinn Féin party that he was part of um, a gun gun movement and where was this all going and what was going to happen or he was in and out of prison and might, have, might there have been a class issue as well I'd say there probably was a class issue even though um, uh, the McSweeney's themselves and the sisters Mary and Annie uh, as well were all very well educated to mm. a very high degree education was a, was of a great um, it was it was really prized in that household mm. because their mother was a teacher in her mm. days she was an English woman but um, so I say there was a little bit about that but then they kind of met as time went on and the Republican movement really uh, g- flourished in Cork and the stature of McSweeney um, you know as bought as Lord Mayor and what had happened to McCurtain very interestingly because even I was doing some research on Mary Elms there a few uh, about um, two or three years back and her parents they would have been of the same ilk now as the Murphys even though different religions but they were all shattered at the death of McCurtain and later McSweeney because they saw them as the figures of Cork City the, the Lord Mayors and how were they you know how they how they saw Suffered as a result, so so that so I think that helped McSweeney to be rehabilitated in the eyes of the Murphy family, and in actual fact, um, when the baby when um, Muriel goes to America and then she goes off to Germany f- to recover really from all that had happened. Um, kind of in the War of Independence and then the Civil War her own mother does step in and looks after the baby and there's a connection there but she breaks again with that and later when Moira Oog the baby grows up and gets married it's actually one of her Murphy uncles that gives her away in um, in her marriage you know uh, no, I, in the old I'm using the old phrase now of giving away yeah. March, walk down the aisle with her is what I should say yes. uh, <laughs> Muriel and Mary were vehemently anti-treaty yes they were and so was Annie yeah there's three of those and so were the two Wallace sisters so were the two Wallace yeah. An awful lot of the women were. Um, I we've come across research that in we, the sh- we we didn't go through all of that t- for this. No, yeah, that uh, they Muriel actually was in Germany when the treaty was being negotiated, and then when it was being discussed in the Doyle in December. And there's a letter from her again signed Muriel Ban Maxivna, and she says um, to Shanti O'Kalig, I think she wrote it. And I could be wrong on that one, but brief letter. But she said, I cannot believe this is happening. I know that Terry would definitely vote against it. Um, and the six women in the Doyle, the the all voted against it including Mary McSweeney who was very vociferous in her um, you know in her attack on it and unfortunately I do think that the strength in which they went against the treaty affected them and other women uh, later in the role of the state mm. um, because you know in terms um, of where their place was or their where their place or, was or and what avenues would open up for them and and how they kind of look came across in the Doyle debates as you know God they're they're they'll never shut up or they're they're what would you call it these women on their high horses well to use the hysterical isn't the hysterical thing but actually if you read some of the male contributions 
um, they were some of those were I would have called bordering on hysterical as mm. well and mm. very 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 um, cutting, well hysterical a was way. a term thrown used against women to, to make it them was, seem as if they're was. just it and, was and that awful phrase virago and being on your high horse and all this sort of stuff which just brings me mm. out in mm. lumps but uh, it infuriates me mm. but equally we also discovered in the course of our study that um, not in the documentary as such but in uh, the Shandon Cominamon the women there were very much to the forefront of taking the pro-treaty side and Cork was the one city where uh, the vote in Cominamon now it was very controversial I will say that but the vote actually was for the treaty the more like 16 branches for the treaty it was powered by the Shandon Cominamon and seven against it powered by Mary McSweeney's branch um, wow. and she was very very annoyed about that very hurt by that but um, th- that was the way they felt in Cork and I think a lot had to do with um, you know their, their, I suppose there was a great loyalty towards Collins as well there was a, quite a few of the IRA in Cork that were very anti-treaty but a number of them didn't want to take arms against the against not so much against the treaty but against Collins and Mm. and their own if you like so it was a very must have been um, I'm not saying I'd have liked to have lived in that time I I wonder what I'd have thought about it but it it fascinates Mm. me as a period because it is such um, a volatile emotive part of our history Mm. You know, oh, uh, it's, it's, and it's, um, and like from the treaty up, I, a lot of the adults that that I'm teaching at the moment would say to me, um, beyond 1916, we never learned anything about Irish history because it was too in their day. They were talking about the 1940s, 1950s, early 60s. It was all too contested. Too, 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 too raw, really, mm. Dave. You know, too mm. real altogether. I think, and um, I mean, there must be other reasons, and other historians will come up with more stuff. But to me, I think when you look at even um, when family gatherings get together and if there's been a fallout, don't go there, you know, because mm. it's still too raw, yeah. you know. Yeah. And it takes a generation maybe to pass, like as we are doing now, even hundreds two. on. And even two in some cases, to talk about this and to get, you know, to get to get a proper feel for it, mm. you know. But Joel, uh, Prof, Prof Jolie used to always say that to us, that there would come a day when we could look at our history, uh, you know, properly and through um, open eyes and mm. open hearts and look at all the sides of it, including mm. things like the First World War and our, mm. our, our involvement in that. And now we're um, looking at the women's role in Irish mm. history and in Cork local history as well, you know. Uh, I've, I've, I, 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 a couple of minutes ago, I knew where I was going to go next. Uh, I, I don't for a moment. So let me pause for a minute because we've talked about uh, Mary and Muriel. Yeah, go for it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we've talked about Mary and Muriel and going to the States. I, I know where I kind of mm. want to get to as, as a potential sort of finish. Mm-hmm. Um, Oh, I think it was more about the treaty. Yes. Yeah. Oh, what I was going to say was that the last podcast chat I had was with uh, John Borganovo oh, and Jerry John, White. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. I've read yeah. both their books. Yeah, one, yeah, yeah. one on the There's burning of Cork, that was Jerry, yeah. uh, and one yeah. on the Battle for Cork, which yeah. was John. That's and right. The chat yeah. we had was about the Battle of Cork. Yeah. Uh, d- again, depending yeah. on when people listen to this, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, there's an exhibition yeah. underway right now in St. Peter's on North Main Street about right. the Super Battle for Cork. Exhibition. Uh, Rebel Cork had been held by the, the anti-treaty mm-hmm. IRA mm-hmm. for 
six months yeah. before yeah. there was an amphibious landing yeah. in Passage West, yeah. West and they were driven out. Yeah. And the people of Cork came out and welcomed the Free State uh, Army with open arms and with, yeah. with gay abandon as yeah. such yeah. because they feared uh, uh, Cork might burn again. I think there was that and um, and you've had the two experts in on this side. So thing I'm giving is just from my own well, sense just interesting. Uh, what, what we didn't hear about was the coming on um, yeah. pro-treaty vote. Yeah, no. Uh, and that was a very, it was done in very bitter, very shady circumstances, but there was definitely that. And if you go back to look at, um, and I was actually only doing it in class last week, the Bale and the Blaw thing, mm. and um, we were looking at Collins travelling to Cork, very, uh, very down, very heavy hearted, uh, on the journey from Clonakilty back, a bit more light hearted, felt that they were they were gaining the momentum and well, well sorry you know. one of the things that when I read I think the battle for Cork and then mm. I realised that it was a week later mm. so the mm. IRA you know, strongest mm. in West Cork mm-hmm. through through the War of Independence mm-hmm. it was, they're beaten yeah. out of the city back down yeah, into the they heartland are, they are, yeah. Collins goes on a tour there yes, I was does, like yeah. what the, what was <laughs> yeah. he thinking yeah. so yeah, you know yeah, yeah. definitely yeah. I think yeah. I think John Borganovo agreed that there was a hubris to it yeah you know, as as in, like I, I'm I'm big enough, I can do this. Yeah. But equally, there then, was an I think, element I, that. But definitely. E- equally, I think um, Gabriel was suggesting mm. too. But it was also rallying the troops and saying we're in we're in charge and we're in control yeah. and everything's okay. It was, um, and I think and you, so. That's the first I heard there about he yeah. came down with a heavy heart. I f- I felt that he like I you know if you uh, listen to Dalton and that uh, Emmett Dalton who travelled with him from Cork, mm. no, not from Dublin to Cork, but that uh, the the passage from Dublin into Cork it was a journey. I I'm not so sure he wanted to undertake, but he knew. He had to, and I or he felt he had to. He felt, I think, the weight of the civil war yeah, on him at yeah. that stage. And I do think he was the one when he when he eventually agreed to go f- to negotiate the treaty. Um, uh, one of the, the, I suppose, the big impetus for him is that um, is that he sees and senses and all the reports. He always kept his finger on the pulse of the IRA, um, the flying columns and the units and ca- and people in that personnel and that his feedback from all of them was the people are getting tired of war. That was the war of independence. They were running out of pl- safe places to stay. People were getting tired of uh, putting people up. There'd been up. a pandemic. There'd been the First World War. Yeah. There'd been 1916. If they didn't offer the safe houses, they were targeted. If they did offer the safe houses they were targeted by the other side and I think then when it came to the civil war um, as a powerful film The Wind That Shakes the Barley mm. given all its I know this, it raises some controversies but mm. it powerfully gets across that idea of that that really really tore the heart out of people for mm. so many it's such a long mm. time I always talk about it that it casts a long shadow on Irish history mm. for better or worse in that it people are in they're fighting in among themselves mm. and there's nothing worse than that mm. you know and I think that broke his heart in lots of ways but it also as well uh, you know the reverse was true as well It kind, I think it kind of said well feck ye I'm going to I'm mm. taking this on and as he travelled through uh, from he went to Cove he was in Cork for a night he went down to Cove he came back he almost he was he had faced an ambush there almost as well and they ran the gauntlet there but he was beginning to see that they were winning uh, places over and when he got to on his way into Bandon he met with Sean Hales who told him Bandon was secure Kinsale was secure all of these but Hales advised him not Hales to go and 
brother was waiting in the ambush. That's right. Uh, no, he was a reluctant. Uh, I believe. No, I, I again, John and uh, the others are, are more expert mm. at this in in the in that kind of uh, expansive history. But I believe, having read something recently, that Tom Hales counselled against an ambush at that meeting in the pub um, that they were having. But when the vote was taken, he lost out on that. But he he went with them mm. then. But can you imagine? These were these were two brothers who fought side by side, who ran the flying columns and would have probably run them even more, but for the uh, imprisonment of the of one or either of them. And that led Tom Barry to be brought in. Um, they were th- that family was just completely riven by by the Civil War. But Hales, Hales, Sean Hales was on the pro treaty side. Mm brilliant strategist and he just I was able to tell him he had got Kinsale he'd got somewhere else and that so again this was this was a buoyancy it was, it was to Collins it was coming back mm. and they were shoving them further and further down West Cork but Hales's advice to him was you haven't enough men with you you're too open in that car um we're pinned where we are like they had to, it wasn't that they had they had won certain battles for him but they still had to be on their guard mm. he was saying to him you are going don't you know don't travel as far as you think you are but as the day went on you see and more and more people were met I think it buoyed him up he saw old childhood friends he saw family mm. friends mm. family sorry family members and there was hostelries visited and sure we know what that eventually does mm. to us but there was a certain level of um that kind of um, sort of sure we'll take him on anyway you know we, and we'll see how we go you know yeah. and even Dalton's phrase to him you know I um, mean he'd operated through the War of Independence he you had, know like yeah. who is it yeah. you're looking for Collins oh yeah. you'll have to catch that or you know those yeah. stories that we yeah. hear yeah. of him sort yeah. of hiding in plain yeah. sight and yeah. being being yeah. a bit cheeky and, and you yeah. know so and, yeah. and, and but sorry his, Dalton's Dalton's advice to him was uh, like he was talking about how um, he said, "Look, we're we're getting all advice in this. What will we do?" And Collins said, "We'll we'll stand and fight." And Dalton, in his own mind, said, "We'll make our minds up when we when we face this." Mm. And when they did come on the ambush in Bale and Blaw, which, which you know, had been stood down, and then it was hastily re they were, they remixed. Were about to, they were, they were they absolutely, were the and actually, there would probably have been more killed if they hadn't dismantled the mine, which they had dismantled on the road mines at that time. But what's what's fascinating is at that point is that Dalton, who had the most experience of all of those in that convoy of, of warfare from the First World War into the War of Independence, his his shout to the driver was drive on, drive on and drive like hell out of here. Mm. And it was Collins who said, no, no, we stop. And and it was interesting that it was Collins prevailed because he was the commander in chief. Mm. But in the area, it was you'd have thought that Dalton had. had and there more, is that um, bit of hubris there, that sense of sort of they won't take me on on my own. Like I'm not, yeah. I'm not going to run in my own place. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, yeah. Oh, and, and, yeah. and seemingly it was the yeah. last shot of the day. And re- like it's yeah. just, it's so. It's one of it's those. Such a tragic uh, story. It is, and it's like one of those awful Shakespearean tragedies, mm. like with the Romeo and Juliet mm. sort of scene mm. that they're they're pretending to be dead in order that they they can get away, and then nobody communicates to the other person and it's a bit like that 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 shot you know goes off and I do think a covering uh, I, shot is how I've heard yeah, it described I, I don't mean any disrespect to anybody in this mm. but I really it's like the, there's an awful lot of time taken up with who did it who fired the shot mm. sorry it was an mm. ambush you mm. know so like mm. it was done and it, it the fact of it is that its consequences mm. were far more important than who actually pulled the trigger you know mm. uh, I think personally but the know? fact that Collins did do 
that just so soon after the IRA had been beaten out of the city still yeah. sort of seems yeah. uh, foolhardy. I, foolhardy it, it is was, the word. I think foolhardy. But maybe not because the way you describe it about, you know, hearing the information about we're getting places back and, yeah, and that, yeah. that sense of he's rallying the yeah. troops and he's, he's yeah. you know, yeah. exploring uh, yeah. an area to yeah. say we, we are yeah. in charge and, and the, you yeah. know, the country's taking shape. So yeah. it's mixed. For, like I, I, <laughs> everything about this is mixed, isn't it? It is. Uh, but I suppose... Even as I talk with Gabriel about all, yeah. I, you know, yeah. still if you were saying, well, yeah. what would you do? Yeah. I don't, I still feel yeah. that, you know, it's, yeah. it's a step that takes us closer to where we want to go. And I think uh, they were really, um, they were really... In terms of... From the Free State's part perspective, well, he was in the, it was the provisional government at the time. From his perspective, it was about ensuring that the role of law and order was mm. held mm. by them, mm. that he kept the British at bay, you know, from, from and there was still, like, yes. it was something that was raised there recently and I hadn't thought of that, that there was still physical presence of British troops on uh, yes. in Ireland. So it wasn't as if they had to transport them across the mm. Irish Sea. That wasn't, that wasn't mm. the issue. It was actually they were physically here. Mm. So he had to be mindful of that. I do think the other thing to think about is that, um, and we've drifted away now from the women, but mm. is that Collins's act of driving openly in this convoy and in this car, big Rolls Royce kind of car, um, open topped car. Um, he was unfortunate that when he when they asked for directions at one point when they got lost, it was an anti-treaty guy that they that they um, spoke to who obviously took the information back to the pub. You can sense the annoyance in the in that meeting that Collins dared to come into their territory, mm. and. I think there was an element of he's kicked us enough now out of Cork so so it's time to let him know that you know there's a pl- places that he shouldn't go and I think the same is on the other side I think Collins is saying to himself well now lads like this is how it is mm. and we're pushing on and if, if if it's war you want war you're getting so I think there was an awful mm. lot of all of that in the mix you know and uh, and then afterwards the terrible the terrible sadness of it all I think Tom Barry writes it, about it and it only got book, you know? more bitter from there yeah, uh, it, it really did. hardened hearts. Uh, it did really, around. and it was very interesting, actually. Um, not so much the the five women in the documentary, but Kathleen Clark, for example, who was vehemently anti-treaty, and of course her own husband had been one of the key organisers of the nineteen sixteen rising. She was exceptionally close to Collins, and even uh, during um, the uh, when they, she recalls in her her own autobiography that she spoke to him uh, during one of the voting things, and he said to her, "Could you not go with me for this?" time and she said I can't and I know I know your heart is in this but I can't but when she was in America lecturing and raising money for the Civil War with Linda Kearns and others uh, when she came out uh, onto the stage it was announced prior to her speech that Collins had died and there was a bit of um, Rira and Rula Bula as they say in the, in the theatre and there was a bit of a kind of a cheering went up well she just absolutely absolutely lost it really in a, in a very controlled she just said you know we I may not accept what he's doing or what he did or whatever but this man you know and she she stood there and defended him in terms of that if this was his legacy to Ireland that how he died was another issue and why he had died but that he did not deserve that level of disrespect and I found that fascinating you know that she was able to she recalled this was the man that she had built the volunteer separate the two things separate the two things yeah you know. to finish uh, Ordinary yeah. Women Extraordinary Times the book yeah. yes the available book, it is yeah um, you can get it in a number of um, bookstores or bookstores in Cork uh, Waterstones and 
and Vibes and Scribes oh, well, have taken it for us, so we're delighted. And also, you can get it from. Um, oh, from there it is there. I'm looking at it. Yeah, it is here. Yeah, you can get it from our ourselves as a history group mm-hmm. um, through um, content. Eleven Cork women in the revolutionary years, 1916 to 1923, yeah. by the Chandonary History Group. Ordinary women, extraordinary times. You can Sorry, get it through me. contacting us on an email. Uh, we're info at chandoneriahistorygroupcork.com and or you can buy it in Chandler Street from uh, James Nolan's Butchers and Martin Duggan's uh, Shoemakers um, so um, there's a number of places that it can be bought on and um, the, f- the documentary is available also on DVD form and that can be got through Frameworks and it's um, Frameworksfilms.com yeah, Frameworksfilms.com uh, exactly, And currently yeah. should anyone be listening to this just as we've recorded uh, available to screen as part of Indie Cork 2022 yeah. This is how I'd like to finish because yeah. I, I, I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, um, that I've read about Muriel McSweeney post all of this and the impact mm. it had on her in a relationship mm-hmm. with her daughter. Yeah. And it all goes a bit it does. weird yeah, or it wrong. Does. It or does, yeah. yeah. What's, what uh, do you know about well, that? I, I her, suppose, she marries again and she does, does she go a little bit? I mean, she's experienced an awful lot, so yeah, I, there's no yeah. judgment being cast. No, no, no. And I'm very, I'm very uh, wary of doing that because mm. unfortunately, um, she's been portrayed as somebody yes. that has gone off the rails yes. or whatever. And is when that you, right, or is there I, a retrospective? I, I think, I think if you look at what she went through in terms of Terence's imprisonments and then um, his death and the manner in which he died, and then being carted off to America to give all these speeches. I think that certainly and she says that on her journey over by liner that she she felt very unwell and that um, she had asked uh, for someone to accompany her and she asked Mary McSweeney um, Mary to travel with her and they did um, but I think Mary's strength possibly overwhelmed her a little bit she was very fragile at that point and who wouldn't have been and I think she gets vilified for that and I find that very hard to take because um, this is a woman who has sacrificed much and who's gone through an awful lot in fact while she was expecting Moira Oak she was transporting arms when because Terence had been had been arrested in front of her and she was left with the arms hidden somewhere and she had to get them uh, through with the help of Carl Brewer out of Dublin so like she she was not um, she was not a shrinking violet in that sense by any means but it was just that her health took a toll and her I suppose her mental state took a toll but that has coloured her and I think another big thing that has coloured her perception in Irish history is her choice of politics which was as she went she went the communist route and that was not acceptable in Cork, in Cork and Ireland of the 50s and into the Do 60s Do you follow her story in the book and the documentary to that extent? Into the, into uh, she the doesn't appear in her book it's just Mary McSweeney appears in the book I won't say anything about ho- I'm hoping that we'll think about a follow up okay. on this one but in the documentary we do we talk about Muriel and what happened to her after and, and how it's she a very fraught relationship with her daughter it is a very fraught relationship and who goes one, a bit off the rails uh, herself it does and a number in Paris or something it or? does and she sends her to uh, she takes she comes back to Ireland and she hasn't seen the child for about two and a bit years um, during the Civil War and after the Civil War and um, there was some suggestion that she would go to the school uh, that that her aunts were running Mary and Annie in Scolita here in um, in um, in Cork City. It's now near the um, current Scolmura, but. Um 
at some point, I think the, the kind of tensions were developing between the three women and particularly the fact that there was a Catholic ethos in the school. I think Muriel um, was having problems with that. So she transports her to Germany and Austria and she spends from five years old to about 12 years old, roughly 13, uh, all those years in boarding schools in Austria and, and Germany. And when Muriel begins to feel that um, the ants are getting too close, the child is moved again. And um, Myra Og, like all in Muriel's corner will talk about how this was very much orchestrated against her and the child was taken from her and the courts voted against her but there's also another side that when you read Myra Og's own version of the story um, she 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 really does feel um, an estrangement from her mother in the sense that they're really together and then when she comes to visit her it's kind of on the spur and then she has to go with her and there's a kind of a um, Muriel, I mean, it, it takes her politics to the child in the sense that her child is not going to be treated any differently to other children. Why should she be all that kind of thing? But I think what Moira O craved, as all children crave, is stability mm. and steadiness. Mm. And whatever the rights and wrongs of how Mary McSweeney went about bringing the child back to Cork. Some say she she kidnapped her. Myra Oak herself says she was helped by her aunt mm. to, to get into a better situation. Mm. But what was very clear was that Muriel um, never really uh, forgave her daughter for it. And she did make, she no, the aunts never stopped her contacting um, Myra Oak and vice versa. But... Um, she, Myra Oak herself, she was about 13, 14. I think she found the co the conversations with the mother very difficult. And Muriel gave her an ultimatum, really. You you leave the aunts and you, you come to me now or we will never speak again. And they never did. And Myra Oak said to her, look, I, I'm happy here. And she, say, she says that in her book. She felt the stability. This is history's daughter now. Yeah. Fantastic read. Um, history's daughter. History's daughter, yeah. And I had the privilege of meeting her, actually, when the book was launched in the Cork City Hall. Um, amazing woman, brilliant. My rogue, my rogue. Yeah, wow. she was quite an elderly woman at that stage. But um, I, I just had a brief conversation with her. But she had an amazing impact on me, and I was, I just wanted to read the book to see her version of the story. And I had come across um, a particular person's book. I won't say who, but they'd kind of poo pooed her that she was in a, a child. But I thought a child of 12, 13, mm. 14 mm. has memories that are very valid and mm. their perceptions of how they they felt were very important. Mm. And it wasn't that she disliked her or didn't love her mother. She actually says, I sought her love, but she kept her distance from me when I wouldn't go. And the aunts gave her stability. They gave her mm. home. They gave her an education. Well, Muriel had suffered so much trauma. She had. It's and hard, I and I, to judge I think like so. That. And I but you, I also you preferred her. Well, not that it's yeah. me, but you know, yeah. to be more stable and to have been more available yeah. to her daughter and yeah. and, and been a, yeah. a, a, had a different yeah. presence in her life. Yeah. But maybe she wasn't able to. No, I I don't know uh, whether she was or she wasn't. And I again, I I don't enter into any judgments on that. Mm. But I just think she had um, a very topsy turvy life herself. Mm. And, you know, things that she followed, like her communism and then certainly her distancing herself from the Catholic Church for reasons that have in recent years, I mm. suppose, been mm. proved, mm. you know, that she wasn't too far off the mark. Mm. They did make her uh, a bit of an enfant terrible mm. for the Irish to handle and kind of um, it, like the court case 
that was taken over the custody of the child that went against her and um, she found that very hard to accept and deal with and I think it was shaped in the time of the you know of, of the Ireland of the time in the mm. 40s mm. so there was a lot of that and I think I would like to see her more rehabilitated for that mm. she took an interest in the oh, there's in a po- big story in there, North there? of Ireland politics and huge interest in housing crisis when you think about current Mm. Uh, topics now mm. but in the 1970s Dublin was facing massive housing crisis mm. and she she was very connected to um, people who were involved in that even though she was writing from England and that she lived in Germany for a time during the Second World War or before the Second World War but she had to leave because of the Nazi thing and the man she was having a relationship with at the time Pierre uh, Kahn he was a Jew a French Jew so he had to leave Germany as well and um um, and I always thought there was another tragedy there. They they had a they had a, an intense relationship for a time, and there was another child born, a girl, Alex. But um, I think it was fading a bit. But then the war intervened, and he was a great hero in France. He was a member of the resistance movement. Was betrayed, taken to concentration camp in Czechoslovakia, and just um, on the day of he was liberated from the camp, but he died. Um, three or four days I couldn't survive the, the condition You're he was right. in and I thought there again here was another man that was to leave her in terms hunger of strike. hunger striking that so how how would your your outlook on life not be shaped by that how would your um, well, you know your thinking in that yeah. she, she, she had to endure yeah, you might she say. did she endured and engaged at yes, the same time yes. to use that phrase but I would also say about her she's a very complex woman yes. she had her flaws that makes her interesting uh, and that makes interesting her interesting subject. and I but I I think what it does is it, it 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 has divided people on her perception, and I think she's entitled mm. to a proper place in mm. in the in the story of Irish history and in the story of the McSweeney family too. Because Annie McSweeney, in her diary, she kept a powerful diary during the time of Terence's hunger strike, which was uh, it must have been very emotive for her to record these things. She refers to Muriel in that that she said, um, and she was writing, uh, she was talking about this in her witness statement years later. She said, "I will never forget." the quiet dignity of Muriel going into the prison by day and then the suffering of her at night. So so no matter what tensions were there between the three women over over the man that they all loved mm. in different mm. ways, dying in front of them, uh, there was that acceptance of Muriel's dignity and, you know, the presence that she bore in a quiet way. But she just, she just, I, I, I there's a part of me admires her because she... <laughs> I suppose she reminds me of my, a bit like that you don't want to um, you don't want to conform to everybody's view of you and to have a perception of you and yet underneath the part of you screaming that's not really me at all and I think there was a bit of that about her you know um, she didn't she didn't play the game and in Ireland you had to play the yes. game to be acceptable yes. really and that you also know? makes yeah. her interesting it does it? And, and actually her two sisters-in-law I, you know there was much made of how different they were but actually actually if you think about that their rebelliousness their um, their revolutionary their sense their spirit was not they weren't miles, many miles away from each mm. other and the two the two sisters were devout Catholics yes they were and that's that was mm. a, a bit a of breach. a dividing line yeah it was but they were devout Catholics 
in their on their own terms. Mm. These were two women who were excommunicated by the Catholic Church mm. and who continued to go to mass on a daily basis or whenever they could down St. Patrick's. Yeah. And there's a lovely story told about Annie who there was a new priest on and she decided she'd go to confession to him. <laughs> and that was fine. And the next day she went, he was still there and he called her and he said, um, she's cute for confession or the next day. And obviously somebody tipped him off and he said, oh, Miss McSweeney, he said, he said, you're a Republican. I can't, I can't give you absolution. And she said, well, no, Father, I consider my Republicanism a virtue. The rest is, are my sins. And I just thought these were like very conservative women. Yeah. In that sense, Mary McSweeney entered into a war of words with Bishop uh, Daniel Collin to the to the letters pages of the Examiner. Good on him. Over, Good on him. They're my heroes as well. Over now. what she, um, he, he claimed, he called her brother Terry in the course of a, of a, of a very strong letter about hunger striking. Yeah. This was what, yeah. it was about, they had supported uh, Donachad the Barra, who's buried next to McCurtain and McSweeney. Literally, they're the three graves out in, out in the plot. And do you know I've never been? Oh, I, oh you, have, you have to do that mm. someday. And he, um, he did, uh, they, they supported him through the hunger strike. And then there was this big thing, uh, Colin had, had put a ban on, Bishop Colin put a ban on hunger striking, that it was, you know, um, attack on the body and all this sort of stuff, self-destruction. So anyway, he had said that there'd be no mass, no no um, public ceremonies for any of people that died. It, this was in the Civil War. So Mary McSweeney and Annie McSweeney actually organised the whole funeral of Donegal the Barrow when he died. And they he then vilified them in the newspapers about where, where did Mary McSweeney find her republicanism? Where was she in 1916 and all this? So she answered him point for point and then she came to the bit about about uh, the hunger striking being a being a, a terrible thing to do and all that and she said isn't it amazing she said how what's a sin now and all this sort of stuff I can't I haven't the letter mm. with me now to mm. quote it verbatim so I'm possibly mm. misquoting words mm. but paraphrasing it let's mm. say He's, she said to him and yet uh, it was all right in 1920 when there was the big requiem mass, more or less, in the cathedral for Terence McSweeney, and he had died on hunger strike, and it was Bishop Colin himself who said the mass. So she was talking about the hypocrisy mm. of, you know, that it was okay in twenty, and it wasn't okay in twenty two, and the re or twenty three. The reason being that one was a war of independence, and the other was the civil war, mm. and the church had backed the free state. But um, and then she finished the coup de grace. I always thought in that letter was, and in relation to my brother. He is Terry only to his friends and family. <laughs> and she was basically of saying which to you him, You are neither. That's it, exactly. Yeah, 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 yeah. I just oh. found it, uh, it was a le like when you consider um, how long it has taken, you know, people to, you know, uh, I, look, I'm, I'm a Catholic myself, so there's, I don't have a problem with that, but there are issues and how people stand now and, and, take their stand and say their things <laughs> I, I, I just find that that this woman was writing this letter back in the 19, mm. Um, mm. Uh, 1920s, 23 and, and Muriel McSweeney was asking questions of uh, the Bishop of Cork about mother and baby homes. What was the reason for them? Why did they need them and all of that? So very interesting thinking about yeah. um, and also about how you know the, the, the poverty in the city and what was being done mm. by you know uh, the church for this poverty mm. and all of that very interesting questions that were uncomfortable questions and in Ireland we don't like uncomfortable questions so Who was the name of your teacher? 
Oh, Sister Margaret Mary uh, Galvin. I will dedicate uh, this chat to her. I would be absolutely delighted, Dave, because we were quite sad today. Now, she was in her 90s, so I suppose mm. it, it's, well, I it's the end of her journey. Of, of you and, and, but and she the, was amazing the love of history teacher. she's helped to inspire in you she and was, others. She so, was, um, she was. Er, she was an amazing teacher. Mila Buekas, Dave. And to me, Shandon Area History Group loved the chat. This is brilliant. I hope people stick right to the end of this because each bit of it for me uh, throws up sort of more stories that we we can't quite go down through now because I'd say we're both uh, tired. (laughs) But that's that's magic. The wonderful women, and it's it's great that you guys have celebrated them both in book and in documentary film. Thanks very much, Dave. Yeah, magic. Thank you very much. Really enjoyed it immensely. Thank you, Slangafold. For more Red FM podcasts, go to redfm.ie forward slash podcasts.